but it was sort of like this coolness of like everyone's telling you you can be awesome and you're not aware of it yet but you're starting to believe it you're starting to follow in the steps of this path you think you're destined to be on and that over and over any movie with that theme like goosebumps like i'm hooked like I remember watching like an anime Dragon Ball Z growing up and I'm like, man, this guy just keeps getting stronger every time he trains. Holy moly, he's doing things he never thought he could do. And honestly, like once I discovered track after football, I was like, this is what I've been watching all those movies my yeah, entire yeah, life yeah. for that I think there's something hidden deep inside of me that's kind of special and it's just a matter of time before it comes out. And I, I just love that. And now I would say that's transition to photography and directing. I feel there's something special that I have to offer that is started and rooted and running and track. And I'm really, really excited to see like where I can take that skill or habit or uh, blessing that I've been given and seeing what's next for me. That's David Brissetti. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is one of my favorite photographers and storytellers in the sport of running, David Brissetti. David lives outside Philly, and he's done editorial work for publications like Runner's World, Like the Wind, and Meter Magazine. And he's also shot commercially for New Balance, Puma, Adidas, Brooks, and other brands. What I love about David is his unique style and penchant for finding and telling the story that no one else seems to be paying attention to. David hustles hard. I've witnessed it myself firsthand, and it shows in the quality of his work. There's a lot to this conversation. David's got an interesting backstory, and it was a trip to dive into it with him in this episode. He told me about growing up as the son of two Puerto Rican immigrants and how that upbringing influenced his work ethic and creativity. We talked about how he got into running, the rocky road he followed with the sport through college, and learning not to let his self-worth get tied up into being a runner. David told me about his odd hobbies and interests as a kid, saving up to buy his first camera in high school, and why he's always been someone who's quick to say yes to things and then will figure it out on the back end. Finally, we discussed the biggest ways he's evolved as a photographer and a creative, what his relationship with running looks like right now, and also his latest project, which launches on July 28th. It's called the Four Years Ago Project, and it's an audio-visual experience featuring athletes who competed in the 2016 U.S. Olympic Track and Field Trials, talking about what they felt that day, what's happened since, and where they are now. There's plenty more to this one. We spoke for about an hour and 45 minutes, so let's dive right into it with David Rossetti. You're a storyteller by trade. I want to start this conversation off by asking you to tell me a story. Oh, Lord. Uh, oh, God. I ran my first 800-meter race in my sophomore year of high school, and I remember I wanted to get faster for football, which I was a whopping 120 pounds, and the coaches didn't have the heart to tell me I should probably be running track. And I remember running the race and feeling my chest, a pain I had not felt ever in my life. 
and getting halfway through, failing to like last place and finishing the race in an astonishing two minutes and 39 seconds. And I remember thinking immediately like, this is totally for me and I'm totally going to get faster. What was it about that experience that stuck with you and made you think that this was what you were meant to be doing? Oh, even though I got dead last, there was something I think about knowing how much more I had to give and grow. Uh, And it was really naive thinking, but I don't remember feeling defeated. I remember feeling like, like in the Matrix when Keanu Reeves gets uploaded his first program and he's like, holy smokes. And the guy's like, hey, Mikey, I think he likes it. He's like, do you want more? He's like, yeah. I think it was sort of like that. (laughs) You mentioned how you were running track to get yourself ready for football. In that first race, was it immediate that you knew that you wanted to stay with track and give up football? I'd love to dig into that a little bit with you. Yeah, I did not know at that point. It wasn't My progress was pretty, uh, I think like everyone else that starts, like you chop off huge chunks of time. So I think I went from 239 to like 206 or 207 my first year. Wow. And yeah, it was when I like made like the four by B team or something for districts that I was like, okay, I think I'm going to try cross country because like I'm like six seconds away from a district medal and there's no way in chance I'm going to gain like 40 pounds and start running the 40 like in four or five or whatever it is. So I think at the end of the season, I ended up telling the coach, expecting him to be severely heartbroken and disappointed. And he was like, well, you know, you're a hard worker. It sucks to see you go, but you know, I totally understand. So he was really nice about it. Uh, I I was total non-factor in football. (laughs) Did you have any interest in track and field or running at all before you joined the team? Never. I When I heard cross country, I didn't even know how far the races were until like the first race we ran. And when you ran that first race and realized it was somewhere around 5K, how did you feel? Uh, I was like, oh man, three miles? That's it? Like I thought these races were like 10 or 15 miles. Like, okay, like I'm going to be done soon. Uh, it still hurt a ton, but... I don't know. I was relieved. Take me through the next couple of years. How did you evolve as an athlete? You mentioned how you got a lot faster that first year on the track. What did the next couple look like for you? So as soon as I had made that relay, I guess my sophomore year, um, I was like all in. I was like, okay, so like I don't get tackled by people twice my size and I'm not going to die of like, I don't know, a severed spinal cord. Uh, Not that everyone does that, but um, I was all in. I I wanted to get better. I knew that I love the idea that when you push, you're going to get better. And the more dedicated you are, the better you're going to get. And it was just really, really interesting for me to latch onto that aspect because in football, um, you know, there's choices for position. I am not good with any bald sport. My wife will tell you 
flat out. Like I, if there's a ball involved, unless it's like a pinball, like I'm miserable with it. I cannot like dribble. I cannot throw too well. Um, so running was sort of like just an effort and a pain management sport. And I was totally addicted to that. Was there anything about the individual nature of running versus a team sport like football that appealed to you? Yeah, I realized I had a really, really high level of dedication to like off-season training in football. I remember like none of the starters would go lift. Like none of the starters would like, you know, I'd be in a weight room like an hour and a half and they were in and out in 20 minutes. And I, I realized once I went to track, I'm like, man, I don't have to worry about anyone else really like not holding up their part. And it was awesome. I really saw a lot of improvement. I had like four different coaches in the next two years. So there was no consistency whatsoever in my training other than I trained. And I think it was like 206 that first year. The next year was 202. And then senior year was 159. So I was pretty pumped with that. I didn't think I would break two minutes, but... um you know, when you go from running like 10 miles a week to 30 miles a week, <laughs> you're going to get better. I guess so. Did you have a naturally competitive streak? Yes. Yeah. 100%. I think once I realized the only thing separating me from like winning these races was just time to get better, like I really, really poured everything I had into it. Did you know? when your high school career was wrapping up that you wanted to continue running competitively? Uh, yes and no. So I remember running my senior, I got pneumonia. I ran like two Oh two indoors and got pneumonia and was out for like a month or two and came back. And in like three races ran one fifty nine. I was like, man, if I had not gotten sick, maybe like, what could I, could I have run like one fifty five or something and like, you know, made it to States. But uh, I had not gotten into my number one school, which was Drexel University, which doesn't even have a track program. And I remember getting a letter from East Stroudsburg University for uh, like diversity, ethnic diversity scholarship. I had like a 4.0 in high school and it was a really like urban high school. Like we had 3,500 kids in our school. We had like a daycare, like there was a fight every day in one of the cafeterias so like anyone who came out of our high school was like offered a, a decent amount of money, uh, whether it was for diversity or, you know, getting good grades. So when I got that letter, I, I had pretty much realized like, all right, this coach is calling me like every week. I guess I'll keep running in, in college. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up my whole life in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So Allentown is um, maybe like, 45 miles from Philly. And right now I've moved to like suburbs, um, like 15 miles out of Allentown. So it's relatively close to Philly. Um, But yeah, Allentown PA is where all the magic happened. (laughs) What was that transition like for you to East Stroudsburg? Um, Very, 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 very eye-opening and very difficult. Um, Academically, I felt like the five AP classes I took in high school were so much harder than school. So academically, it was like not difficult. Um, going to a school where like there wasn't a lot of diversity uh, was interesting. Um, 
when you know you, you get tossed into training and I was very very dedicated and very very loyal um, the coach had a, a great um, history of producing like all Americans etc cetera, etc cetera. and I, I just got injured I would I ran at most 30 miles a week in high school bumped up to like 50 55 60 and went from running maybe like 730 a mile on most days to having to run like 640 pace or risk you know, getting lost and being five miles away from campus. So it was just really hard. I, I really uh, lost myself in trying to find my identity when I was injured, when, you know, I was getting dropped every day. And I'm like, man, this cross country business, like I, I can't even break six miles for a stinking 8K. And, you know, I used to be kind of like a standout. I like, I just want to run track. Um, so it was really interesting being injured and having being used to like just having complete faith in the coach and realizing that what was being prescribed to me wasn't working and having to have those difficult conversations with the coach was really hard because it's like listen I've had like five coaches in two years and I've never been injured and now I'm just consistently injured like could we maybe change something could we maybe go this way or that way um but, you know, the coach was super seasoned. He had his system and it was a, a whole corral of guys. And it was like, this is the system, you know, you'll adapt sooner or later. Um, and I, it, it just wasn't for me, that training. It just didn't yeah. match. I think that's one of the biggest challenges of being part of, of any team, but certainly a collegiate program where the coach has to cater to a few dozen people and obviously not everyone's going to respond to training the same way and everyone's backgrounds a bit, bit different especially a freshman coming in for the first time as you described where you were comfortably running like 30 miles a week and then to almost double that and increase the intensity right away it's like a recipe for disaster yeah i had a like a stress fracture in like high up in my femur or something and, you know, they did all these tests and I was like, man, on crutches. And I, I hated being the guy on crutches. And then, you know, indoors would roll around and I'd see like people running like 205 or something. Or, you know, just feeling I couldn't contribute was like heartbreaking, like feeling I couldn't help the team. And I'm like, man, if I was healthy, I could totally be getting points here and there. But uh, it was just interesting. I'm sure uh, 100% positive it's more common than I thought. And, uh, but when you're like in it, you kind of feel like a victim and you get really down. Um, so that that was really something I struggled with. Um, you know, feeling an outsider, you go to the cafeteria on campus and, you know, your team just got done running and you, you have nothing to talk about. You weren't on the run. You don't know what transpired. So even though you're like still on the team, it's, it's really emotionally and I think psychologically challenging for anyone who's been injured. At that point of your life, did you tie up a lot of yourself worth and identity in being a runner? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I remember even when I got back to like being able to race, like I got off crutches and they were throwing me in races like two weeks later, um, like just feeling utterly pathetic. <laughs> uh, it wasn't good. I remember having a lot of difficult conversations with um, my girlfriend back then, now wife of, you know, her just trying to cheer me up. And I'm like, man, like I'm, nothing now like it's I'm embarrassed with what I'm doing out there and it's like where did I go and you know what do I do and I don't I'm so lost um it was 
really, really, I think those three years, a difficult time um, to navigate. Did you stay on the team for the rest of your time at East Stroudsburg? No. Uh, my last year, I uh, I remember, I think I ran like 202 at practice in November. I had transitioned to the sprint coach. They kind of handed me off to him. And the sprint coach was giving me 20 miles a week and just a ton of hills and intervals, which I like thrived off of. So I remember the previous outdoor season, I don't think I ran any faster than like 210, like really miserable. And I mean, for me, not that 210 is a slow time um, for anyone. But I remember like in November, I would just do quarters, cut downs, and we just ran a time trial practice. And I think I ran 202. And, uh, you know, the agreement was if I could dip under two minutes, I would make the limited indoor roster. Uh, the state school system in PA during that time was hit. Uh, the men's side was hit pretty hard with, uh, you know, just rebalancing everything with Title IX. So I think we were limited to like 31 spots on the indoor team, like all events included. Um, so that was a little difficult. I didn't make the team. And at that point, you know, I kind of saw my way out. I was like, I kind of know enough now to train myself. And uh, I don't know if you'd want me to mention this, but um, do you know who Steve Finley is? He's like Brooklyn. So Steve Finley and I trained in high school locally during the off season because he went here before he went and won the state championship at Palatine. Um, but I reached out to him when he was at UVA and I'm like, Steve, could you write some workouts for me and like get me going? And literally like in three weeks, I ran like 159. I was like, okay. I'm done. I'm done with running. Like that was way too big of a circle for me to do. And I, I know I still had it. And at that point, my my interests, I think, were starting to sway more toward photography. I had a, a different group of friends that were more similar to the ones that I had in high school. And uh, I don't know. I felt that I had finally proved to myself that, you know, I, I still did have the ability to run somewhat decent. And uh, it was sort of like, such an emotional roller coaster that I was just so spent. I called it senior year and I just focused on studies and what I had to do. Were you able to separate your identity from being a runner at that point? Was that challenging for you? I think at that point over the course of the three years, I don't know, there was just so much other baggage. You know, uh, there's things when you grow up, we grew up, I don't want to say poor and make it sound cliche, but my mom was the only one who worked. So there was just a ton of emotional things. I had issues digesting. So when running wasn't going well, all these other things were like exacerbated. They were, you know, that mom and dad are splitting up and this and that, and my dad's drinking again and this. So it was really, really hard. I remember seeing the college counselor and like, I didn't know what counseling was, but I figured it could help. And that was tremendous. That really helped me get through a lot and getting a new group of friends and finding, I don't want to say a new identity, but you know, photography was interesting. Video was interesting. I had friends that were really interested in that. Um, it was a more diverse group of friends. And uh, I think I just like slowly found a new home and my mind shift. You know, I started to mature and adapt and realize you know, I'm not going to be an Olympian. Like, even if everything goes well for the next three years, like I run what 154 and like call it a day. So, 
Um, I think I was finally at peace with what I wanted to get out of the sport. My girlfriend, then wife, was already graduated. She was four years older than me. So I was looking forward to just like getting out of school, finishing it up, like moving back home and like, you know, starting the next chapter of my life. Let's hit pause right there. I want to come back to that point of your life and talk about how things grew from there. But let's rewind right now to your childhood growing up in Allentown, PA. You mentioned how when you went to college, you got a diversity scholarship. Where you grew up was pretty diverse area. I know you were from Puerto Rican heritage. What were things like for you as a young kid? Growing up, you don't notice until you go away. Uh, you gain scope and you don't know what things shouldn't be normal that you see growing up. And it isn't until you're around other friends, you know, maybe in college that's finally you get people from different backgrounds, different uh, upbringings that you realize like some of this stuff you saw growing up wasn't normal or good to see in some of the things you experienced. So um, I have an amazing mother and father. Um, my dad's from Puerto Rico. My mom was born, born in Puerto Rico. My mom was raised in Manhattan. Um, so her English accent was a little better than my dad's. Um, but they were both like really driven, hardworking, very blue collar. I think my mom worked as a cashier at Kmart, upgraded to like a bank teller, then upgraded to like a front desk hospital registration. And uh, I remember going to shop for college and like telling my mom, you know, oh, this one's like 20,000 a year. This one's 50,000 a year. And like her revealing, she's like, well, I make like 36,000 a year. And that was like all of our family's income. Uh, so I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not going to college <laughs> where it's, and I was like looking, I'm like, well, I'm not going to stay around here. So like, if I go to college, it'll be someone gives me a scholarship. And I remember she was very, uh, she is very uh, spiritual and like led by faith in God. And she definitely like prayed over it and said, you know, God will end up, you know, wherever it's meant for you to end up, you know, God will provide, there'll be a scholarship that'll come from somewhere. And lo and behold, it, it did come from East Stroudsburg, but um, that was probably the only reason I probably would have went to college, to be honest. Was that a big goal that your parents had for you growing up was for you to go to college someday? Um, I would say we kind of never spoke about it. Um, I never felt the pressure to go to college. My mom had gone and I think got like an associate's degree. Uh, my dad was one of six in the family and he probably finished eighth grade at the highest. His mm -hmm. mother had left him when he was growing up. Um, abusive, you know, alcoholic uh, father. And um, his father died, I think, when he was, my grandfather, I never met, I think he was 18 when he passed away. So my dad had to grow up really quick and get to work. Um, I don't think college was ever in the, in the conversation until my senior year when I had all those AP classes. I didn't even know what the hell AP meant. I just know they were like the hardest classes to take. And I'm like, oh, I want to take the hardest ones. And uh, I remember all my friends, and I was probably the only Puerto Rican friend in that little like micro group. Um, 
I remember them saying like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go look at Delaware. I'm going to go look at like Princeton or I'm going to go look at, you know, some other like local schools. And I'm like, oh, my friends are looking at schools. Like me, I remember my senior year. I'm like, I guess I'll like start looking at colleges my senior year. Like there was no like, you know, oh, let me submit my times junior year to like some code. No, it was like October of my senior year. I'm like, I don't want, where are you going to school? Maybe I'll, I'll look there and apply or something. There, there was no, very little guidance and very little awareness of like what was out there. I know you were into sports as a kid growing up, but what were some of your other interests? Uh, honestly, a lot of stuff that I did growing up in my youth was non-sports related. It was very much uh, sci-fi. It was very much movies, collecting stamps. I was such a nerd. I collect stamps, coins, Pez dispensers. I essentially grew up like in the flea market. And for those that people don't know what flea markets are, they're kind of, I don't know, farmer's market type. You find stuff, there's broken chairs and DVDs and stuff you go buy and sell. It's kind of like one big garage sale all under one tent. That's what it is. So around here, there's a, you know, you drive 10 miles from where I live and you're in cornfields. It's very rural. Um, So there's these huge like plots of lanes that are acres and you go, you pay five or 10 bucks you get a spot for the day, like a 10 by 10 or 20 by 20 spot. And my dad growing up had to like learn how to hustle. So he would find stuff in the trash. We'd collect stuff and then we'd go to these yard sales. So that was a huge interest of mine growing up. Like, can I go on the south sides of Allentown's garbage collection night with my dad and find enough stuff so we can go flip at, the flea market that weekend to buy money for groceries. Like that was my hobby growing up. I loved collecting. I love sci-fi. I love movies. And it honestly wasn't until like eighth grade gym that I'm like, oh, I'm quicker than the other kids. Maybe I should play football. And then it just took two years of me getting beat up in that sport in high school to realize that <laughs> I should just go back to the racing. I don't want to get too far ahead and skip over all that much, but in your work as a photographer and a documentarian, you're known for your hustle. I, I've seen it uh, up front. And we're going to talk about that later in this conversation. But since you mentioned that's how your dad was when you were growing up, he would hustle at the flea market and did what he had to do to make money to provide for the family. I'm curious, is that where your own hustle comes from? A hundred percent, yes. It was, it was uh, a lot of my father... I remember several times like, oh, we don't have, we don't have money for, we don't have milk and bread or we don't have this or we don't have that. And my dad would be like, hold on, I got an idea. Like I'll be back. And like, he would come back with like grocery bags. I'm like, what the hell do you do? He's like, oh, I drove by this chair on the curb that I saw and I went and I sold it to this guy that I knew that needed it. Like he was just really good at doing that when it needed to happen. And I, I really do even now look back and realize, um, you know, my dad never really had a full-time job. Um, he was sort of like the stay at home dad. He had a lot of stuff to deal with, uh, growing up that until very recently he hadn't finally seen a counselor to talk to. So, um, I'm forever grateful that any hustle that I have, I a hundred percent attribute to him. 
you mentioned how growing up you were kind of a collector of things. You were a total nerd. Were you into the storytelling aspect of these sci-fi movies and things that you were consuming? Oh, absolutely. I remember I didn't watch Star Wars till later, probably like middle school, and it had been out for what, already 10 years or 12 years. Uh, and I remember just being sucked into like, oh, the, the layering of this and that and the plot twist and all these powers. And uh, that was a huge part of it. Um, I played a game for way too many hours in middle school. Um, Final Fantasy VII. It was a role-playing game. I had never played one, but everyone was talking about it. I saved up enough money and went and got it. And I remember the story of that just like sucking me in and realizing like, man, like I'm, uh, I just love it. I love experiencing that stuff. And I think it was like watching movies. We were big on movies growing up. Um, I remember going to the drive-in with my family and just if we did one thing, we, we did movies and not to get stereotypical here, but I'm pretty sure there is research that proves like Hispanics like are a large portion of like the movie going audience. I don't know where that is. Don't count it on the record, but I remember recently (laughs) seeing that and I'm like, this totally makes sense. Like we were poor as dirt, but for some reason we thought like, let's spend 20 bucks to go all watch this movie. And we did it regularly. Were there particular types of movies that you were more interested in than others, like as a family? No, I think I think growing up it was very much like what's out and new, you know, Home Alone, uh, Ace Ventura, uh, and I, now I ironically like go to the thrift store and buy all these VHS tapes. I have like a hundred VHS tapes of like everything from growing up. I'm like, oh, Death Wish three, this is awesome. Short Circuit, RoboCop, OMG. So I, I go nuts with that stuff now, and they're dollars, so it's like a guilt free collecting thing. But I will say growing up, as I got older, I remember seeing The Matrix in the movie theaters in the third row and Joey Perrin Kozar's eighth uh, grade birthday. And it was like life changing that movie. And I, I was so drawn to the fact that someone can train and get better and better and better. And it's sort of like that, um, uh, I don't know if it's called stereotype, but there's something in movies and in stories that it's like the protagonist is like augmenting his power and training and discovering his abilities. And there's all these rumors of like, Hey, when you're ready, you won't need to dodge bullets. Um, and fair warning, I'm pretty sure there's going to be more matrix references throughout the, <laughs> throughout this episode. Cause I feel like that's almost like my Bible. Um, but it was sort of like this coolness of like, everyone's telling you you can be awesome and you're not aware of it yet, but you're starting to believe it. You're starting to, you know, follow in the steps of this path you think you're destined to be on. And that like over and over any movie with that theme, like goosebumps, like I'm hooked. Like I remember watching like an anime Dragon Ball Z growing up and I'm like, man, this guy just keeps getting stronger every time he trains. Holy moly. He's doing things he never thought he could do. And honestly, like once I discovered track after football, I was like, this is... It makes sense. This is what I've been watching all those movies my yeah, entire yeah, life yeah. for. 
that I think there's something hidden deep inside of me that's kind of special and it's just a matter of time before it comes out. And I, I just love that. And now I would say that's transitioned to like photography and directing. I feel there's uh, something special that I have to offer that is started and rooted and running and track. And I'm really, really excited to see like where I can take that, that uh, skill or habit or uh, blessing that I've been given and seeing, you know, what's next for me. I appreciate you sharing all that, man. You really were quite the nerd growing up. And now your yeah. obsession with arcade machines makes a lot more sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was like, oh, I could buy these things now. Yeah. That's a whole other story. Holy moly. Yeah. Which we don't, we don't have to get into here. So let's fast forward back to where we hit pause earlier in this conversation or even rewind it a little bit from there. When you were going into college, did you know what you wanted to study? Uh, I think growing up, I wanted to be a doctor. That never happened. I probably should have been, but <laughs> oh well. Uh, I think I I worked at JCPenney in high school and I folded way too many clothes and I saved all my money and bought like a Sony Handycam video camera. And I remember shooting videos with that my senior year and realizing like, oh, like maybe I'll go like to video. I'll go to school for video or, or photo or something. And East Stroudsburg ended up having like a, like an amalgamation, like a cumulative um, major that you could take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it would count as like a media major. Um, but as soon as I found that, that's all I looked for. So you knew you wanted to do something in the media space, even if it wasn't clearly defined at that point? Oh, a hundred, yeah, absolutely. I remember dismissing a lot of other things. I think I was considering like physical therapists and... I don't know. Do you remember the first thing that you made with whatever it was that you shot with that handheld camcorder? Yeah. Uh, cue nerd alert. Um, I, I took all my Star Wars action figures as a senior uh, in high school, which somehow I was enthralled by Star Wars action figures as an 18-year-old and made like a stop motion animation thing. Um we also just like handed it to my cousin and told him to like record all my races. Have you done anything with any of that footage? Uh, the Star Wars stuff? No. No, no, no. The race footage. Oh, my race footage. Holy moly. No, my form was terrible when I first started. And then once I got good, I just ran. My cousin quit the team, so I had no one to record. <laughs> so it was like me splitting like 60 seconds in a four by four and me running like 208. I'm like, I don't want to see that. So at the end of your time at East Stroudsburg, you were ready to step away from running. You broke two minutes. You're like, I'm good with this. You've taken this mixed media major. Your now wife is well graduated by this point. What were the next steps for you out of college? That is a fantastic question. Um, it was kind of a blur during my course of getting injured, the hustler came out in me because I had all this free time and I decided to try to pursue a contract with the school. I know I wanted to buy this like camera equipment. There was a, a, a guy on the team that was older than me that had like a professional, professional camera. And holy moly, I really have never told this story, but Dave Hooper, uh, Hoop, um, 
he kind of had all this really high-end gear. And I remember him like just showing me the ropes. He was, I don't think I've ever, I don't even think I remembered about Dave Hoover, but holy moly, like, I don't think if he had ever showed me that stuff and taught me what to get, I would even have bought it. Um, It was like $3,000 of stuff. So at school, they always have these like credit cards. You get like a free t-shirt for signing up and all the, you know, they sucker all the kids into it. I just noticed it was 0% for 12 months. So I bought all the gear I needed for $3,000 and knew I had a year to pay it off. So then I got a contract with the university and I said, hey, give me a contract for $3,500 for the year and I'll just take pictures of all these events for you and like submit them to you. So like I had the camera essentially paid off before like I'd even bought it with a contract. Um, And in that time, I remember like I would take pictures of my teammates at these races with the camera. And, you know, they love them because it's like, you know, before Instagram, before Facebook even, that they were getting like really cool pictures. And I remember thinking like, man, we have a conference championship coming up. Like, it'd be so cool if there was a way to like take pictures of these people because they're such special moments. No one, you know, your grandma's going to come there with a point and shoot camera indoors. It's going to come out dark and blurry but I had this like really nice camera. So I put my wife at my sales table. She's gorgeous. So it totally worked. Um, (laughs) I I remember like once Instagram happened, he's like, yo, check out the hot chick at the conference table, you know, photo table. And it was like my wife. Um, So it totally worked. But I found this like platform online where I could upload the images by school and then just put them for sale. And I'm like, is this legal? So I like checked into like, you know, the permissions and stuff. And over the course of like my college career unto, uh, you know, up until maybe three or four years removed from college, I was like the conference championship photographer. And that snowballed into having like four employees at these events on all these computers tethered together. And I bought this like huge printer. So people would like run the 800, go cool down, come back, and they could like look at pictures from their race. Wow. And I'm like, I was like, man, like, and I I honestly did it because I was like, I would love for this to have existed because like I have one blurry picture of when I broke two minutes and I was actually like the highlight of my career in high school. You know, you work so long. It's not that amazingly fast, but to me, it like meant everything. And my friend Sarah Freed had taken one blurry picture and I I still have that picture. And I remember like, man, like it would have been so cool to get more pictures from that like last race. Mm -hmm. And I felt that same way for people. And it was awesome. Like that printer, I'm not going to lie, just printed money, essentially. Like people would come like, hey, 10 for 100, you know, five for... And I had just like my best friends who were just natural born salespeople. And uh, they just did a great job. We transferred that to like the state championship here in Pennsylvania. Did that for a couple of years. Transferred that to swimming championships. And uh, that's kind of like how like Dave Brissetti photography, like made money early on in its career. Help me frame this, no pun intended, in terms yeah. of a time frame. Are we talking like 2012-ish? Uh, so I graduated college in 2008. So I'd okay. say from 2008 until 2000, or 2006 to 2010, 2012 maybe, okay. I was like going, you know, I go to these events like two or three times a year. And other times in between, 
I, I don't know. I wanted a coach. I wanted to help people because I had gotten injured. So I ended up getting like my level one or level two and like coaching at the local division three college. And then the head coach job fell in my lap. So <laughs> at the bright age of 22, I think I was like the head cross country coach at this division three school. And I was doing that while I was figuring photography out. I can't imagine that cross-country coach at a small D3 school would have been a full-time job anyway. I mean, the hours are definitely full-time from an investment standpoint, but from a compensation standpoint, I can't imagine that would have just paid the bills on its own. No, my wife was, her back must have been so sore from carrying the team for so many years (laughs) because she was such a champ and just, she was such a trooper. She had her house, she had her car, she had her job. And, uh, you know, she was four years uh, she's four years older than me, but I I look up to her still every day. She's so like driven. She just gets stuff done. She's so solid. And I am the total opposite. I am like, wherever the wind blows today, like I might go. Have you always been that way? Duh. Yeah, I think so. Like last minute adventures is like soul satisfying for me. So I think my, I don't know, I'm pretty sure I have undiagnosed ADD and whatever things, something I'm like, oh, this is bright. This is fun. Let's do this. Let's go be a director today. Oh, let's go do this. Hey, let's sell websites. Hey, let's do this. And it was a lot of that early on um, until I worked through it. More dots are connecting for me right now as I think about some of your more recent projects, which we will dive into here in a little bit, but when you were coaching D3 cross country and still doing some photography stuff on the side, how are you feeling about it? Did you want to continue? I mean, I know how it's ended up because we're having this conversation now and you make your living as David Persetti photography, but were you thinking that coaching was an avenue you wanted to pursue? Did you always want to do a little bit of both? Did you hope to eventually transition to more full-time photography? Clue me in a little bit on all of that. I think at the time I had a couple like pots on the stove, a couple uh, different fires going on. I had the coaching thing and the coaching thing made me like a little stipend. But it was like I got to write all the workouts. I got to make all the mistakes. I got to do everything I needed to. And it was great. It was a great environment to learn. Um, but it isn't until you like live it and go through it that unless I had gone to X school or like grew up or ran with this guy at this university, there was no way in a million years I was ever going to like be an assistant at Oregon or Arkansas or whatever. It was insane to think that. And I was very naive. I must've applied to maybe 35 different schools, had interviews at like seven of them. None of them ever panned out. Um, And then, if I did qualify for a job, it was like, not that I don't like Buffalo, New York, but like, I don't know if I want to move to Buffalo. Like, I don't know if I want to move to like some suburban place in West Virginia. Like, I don't know. Um, so I think I found once I discovered like it wasn't going to be what I needed to be. And I kind of hit a ceiling, uh, not to toot my own horn or humble brag here, uh, but we did break like 14 school records in the distance events. Like it was insane. Like every record was wiped clean. Um, it was great. I was able to bring like this really hardcore, uh, sometimes unwelcome, like 
very disciplined way of doing things. I'm like, this is how we're going to do it. This is a system. We're going to do it. And everyone's going to get their own training. If you're an angel runner, like no two angel runners might train alike. So it was super hyper custom, but that didn't work out. Um, we had our second kid when I had finally, I wanted to see this one, oh, this like senior class of athletes through and the one girl ended up being like all American. And uh, I was like, okay, like I'm done here. I'll continue to try to do the photography. I'll continue to try to do these event things. I'll do websites on the side. But I was very much so lost. And now with a second kid, you know, being born, it was really hard. Um, a marketing job fell in my lap. I had watched way too many like Gary Vaynerchuk YouTube videos. And somehow I had learned marketing along the way, I guess from my dad and Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, that one-two combo got me a job and it was insane. I went from making like $8,000 a year coaching to like 53000 at this like marketing job. And I'm like, holy moly. I remember my wife like smiling ear to ear. She's like, we're selling this house. We're moving. Like you're getting yourself out of that 92 Camry. Like it's going to be awesome. And I'm like thinking I could feel like my freedom shrinking away, but I'm like, oh, this will be a cool opportunity. Like marketing. I'm really into like improving things and video and photo and, you know, creating strategies for branding. I really love all that stuff. I worked at that job for like two or three years. Uh, and done everything. I like rebranded the entire school, did everything myself. Um, and I just hit a ceiling and I'm like, I'm not going to stay here. Circling back to Gary Vaynerchuk, I saw that he got a personal trainer on one of his like first episodes of like the Gary V show, if anyone follows that. And I went to his personal trainer's website and his website was like subpar. His videos needed help. And I thought I could help him. So I wrote to him and say, hey, I'll take a day off of work and come up to New York City and give you all of my services for free. I just wanted you to know what I can offer and maybe there's something we can work on in the future. And he responded like two weeks later. He's like, hey, sorry, been busy, bro. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Like I'm actually looking for like a full-time uh, video guy and you know, I can move you to Brooklyn and all this stuff. I'm like, listen, I got a family. I'm not moving. Like, I'm really into photography. I think I could help you with your marketing. But he was adamant he wanted to do video because Gary was like, you need to get a video person. Fast forward, by the end of the day, he offered me a job. And he's like, just tell me what you need to make. And he was living in the penthouse of like Hell's Kitchen apartment. And I was like, holy moly, like, I don't know. I don't know what to, so it was literally like a gut wrenching week. I had to talk to my wife, like, am I going to leave my job? Am I going to go to New York? Like, work twice for a week? guy. Yeah. yeah. Like, are we moving? Are we not? Does he have money? Like, is this even a joke? So it was insane. I ended up asking for like what my salary was essentially bringing in at that point. And he agreed to a year, like, yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, holy moly. So now I get to quit the job I'd hit the ceiling with. Uh, I was going to end up getting myself fired anyway. It was not good. Um, and now it's like, okay, I have to go to New York once a week and create content for this guy. But I have a year contract and now there's more time and freedom to get back into like the photography that I really want to do. And that's sort of how I found my escape from like working nine to five. That's a pretty amazing story. Before we move forward, I want to rewind again to when you had just kind of gotten out of school and you were shooting at the conference championships. 
submitting photos or providing photos for the school, for the athletes. I'm very familiar with your approach now. Were you honing it back then? I mean, were you just taking action shots from the races or were you trying to get creative with the types of photos that you were providing for these people? At first, it was definitely all action shots. I remember, like, I still have CD backups of, like, pictures from 2006, and it was all 100%, like, spray and pray, get everyone you can, just get them done. And it wasn't until, gosh, I have to think back. Um, I went, I volunteered on a 500-mile uh, bike ride in support. Uh, my high school friend, she's come up again, Sarah Freed. Uh, her father had organized a biannual bike ride for cancer. And the original route was around the perimeter of Pennsylvania. That's why it's called the Pennsylvania Perimeter Ride Against Cancer. Very long name. But I volunteered on that and had a camera. And my wife was riding and I was volunteering. And I was taking a lot of these behind the scenes pictures, we would travel and then just sleep on like gym floors and YMCA floors and VFW floors with air mattresses, get up the next day. And I wouldn't bike a hundred miles, but they would bike essentially a hundred miles a day, 50 riders. I think that's where I started to sort of get lured into the storytelling, the behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, these people are like, yeah, they love their pictures of them on the road, but like, I'm getting cool pictures of like silhouettes of riders at 5 a.m. getting ready on the road to beat the heat. Um, and I think that's where like the storytelling component came to life. Um, I ended up getting a couple jobs too. I, I kept thinking bigger. If I could do this at the conference meet, maybe I could do it at the regional meet. If I could do it at the regional meet, maybe I could do it at the national meet. Like if I can do it at the national meet, maybe I can get into some like professional meet. And that event side snowballed, but it wasn't until like I started booking those like national NCAA championships that I would like stay with the coach and sleep on his floor and like photograph his team at a dinner or something. I'm like, there's something here. I didn't know it at the time, but it just, I thought it was cool. And I think it's looking back now snowballed into like the style that I have now. That's super interesting. So when you're working for this trainer in New York City, you've left your marketing job. You're creating content for him. He wants video. You're primarily a photographer at that point. Were you hesitant to do the video stuff or did you look at it as a challenge to accept? I remember being super, super scared that I'm like, I don't know, like what if he wants me to create something and it's not that great? Like I got to buy a microphone. Like I don't even know what microphone I should get. And I think as soon as he like accepted the terms of the contract, I was like, I'm going to figure this out. Like, I don't care if it was like doing backflips for like two hours in New York, I was going to figure it out. Um, and I, I just got better and better and we grew with each other. Uh, we had a viral video we did on like the true fitness, the true, you know, meaning behind fitness that it's not all glamour. It's to like, you know, when you're older and retain muscle and it, it had a really nice music and it hit like around Christmas so I had like probably 80 million views or something crazy like that. Um, I know he was proud of it, but yeah, like for what little I knew at the time, I was able to get by and I, I think I'm pretty scrappy to figure things out. I'm quick to say yes and then just figure it out on the back end. 
<laughs> I think that sums up your style pretty well. <laughs> Fast forwarding a bit, when did you transition from working as this guy's personal content creator to going and shooting more athletes at different events throughout the country, really honing your skills as a storyteller and getting a lot of those behind the scenes types of stories? I would say 2016 is where it all began for me. Uh, I was really, really all over the place, but I think most photographers, uh, I want to believe that most photographers are in finding their style and what really uh, comes from the inside as opposed to trying to mimic something they've seen. I think a lot of us start out mimicking, you know, uh, idolizing or, uh, you know, um, seeing something they want and trying to leverage that style into the work and that's something i did early on i shot everything from like crossfit to swimmers to i just wanted like cool athlete portraits i wanted a magazine to buy my pictures and um going back to that bike ride again i remember maybe like eight years after i had first volunteered um i was like you know what it'd be really cool if we got these portraits of these athletes these riders at the end of a 100 mile day like just before they even got off their bike, like sweaty, like drenched. And I would love to get like these clean portraits of them. Um, And that was honestly probably like my first like real thought out personal Mm -hmm. project. Um, And I had one light. I I duct taped like a bunch of white paper to this brick wall outside Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, like the middle of nowhere. And these riders like rode up this nice steep hill right at the end. And I would just be like, hey, stop right there. Okay, look here. All right, you can take off your helmet. Oh, that's awesome. Splash yourself with water. Oh, great. And um, I had a, a friend at the time who was very much a mentor, Steve Boyle in Philly. And he saw those portraits and he's like, I would use that, get this retoucher, like get him professionally retouched. I'm like, what the hell is that? Like, what's a retoucher? Like, I don't know this. It's like, no, there's people that make a living like making sure the orange is perfect and the blue is perfect and the shadow is gone and the shadow's here. So he introduced me to a guy. He retouched them. I sent them over to Bicycling Magazine and like the phone rang almost immediately that they needed a job last minute. And I think that's like how things snowballed with that into the 2016 Olympic Trials Project. Which is when we first came in touch with one another because I can't remember exactly how we connected. Maybe you reached out to me at first or maybe I caught your work somewhere, but you sent me these photos that you took from the Olympic trials in 2016 and none of them were of the races themselves. They were of the athletes either at the practice track, like in their dorm room, um, you know, doing strides in a parking lot and you're like, I have all these images. Like, what do I do with them? <laughs> um, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe that's how we first became connected. And I advise you to publish them somewhere and tell the stories behind them. And then we promoted it in my newsletter in the morning shakeout, which at the time was, I think, less than a year old. And it got some traction, um, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I can't think of a moment before that when we met. But yeah, you're right. There was all these athletes I had like DM'd and tweeted to before and had luckily clawed and scraped my way into getting to that meet to tell those stories. And um, it was awesome. It was probably the best investment I've ever made into myself and my career. 
Because you didn't have an assignment. Well, I actually did. So what had happened was, (laughs) uh, like the bike portraits, um, I had written to like every contact I'd ever had, every magazine, every newspaper about doing this project because these people come off the track, right off the track, um, you know, from the Olympic trials after their final and they're either crying or sobbing or angry or, you know, numb or elated. And I'm like, that'd be great to just get a consistent flow of these portraits and nobody bit, not ESPN, not USA Today, not WAPO, not New York Times. No, Runner's World didn't, said no. Like, I was like, damn, like, Outside Magazine said no. I was like, man, I am really like, Sports Illustrated said no. And I remember I had a random phone call years ago with Matt Taylor because I was going to travel the country in a van to interview all these colleges. I have a lot of stories. I'm like, holy moly. Uh, But yeah, I was putting together a marketing campaign for a company about traveling and he had done that. Um, himself, Matt Taylor, before he was at Puma. Then he left Puma and started Tracksmith. So when I reached back out to him, I know he was at Tracksmith and he had Meter Magazine. And I said, is there any way on the planet you'd be interested? And he's like, hell yeah, that's right up our alley. So, uh, you know, we worked out the deal and it was going to be enough for me to get, he was the only person that believed in me. He was, you know, enough to get me a ticket some food, some lodging to be there for the 10 days. And I said, hell yeah, because like, there's so much more I want to tell. I just need an in on the assignment. So Matt uh, was awesome. He still is awesome, but like I am forever grateful for that guy for getting me there. Um, And we had, you know, we applied for the credentials. We had to jump through a ton of hoops to get them, but I got the credentials. And luckily when people walk through the media tent, the athletes, they had run out of signage. <laughs> In classic USATF fashion, uh, they had run out of banners to put behind the people and then one of the walls was just white. And I'm like, holy moly, I, I brought you know all this equipment and bought all this equipment and flew all this equipment and paid extra money and I ended up using none of it. I just used the white background that was out the wall of the tent. And through Twitter and Instagram and DMing people and the power of the internet. Like I convinced people that I've never met somehow to say yes to this crazy idea of, can I hang out with you and take pictures of the most important race of your life? (laughs) And God bless Leah O'Connor. God bless Kara Winger and Johnny Dutch and Kate Grace. Charles Jock. Charles Jock. Holy moly. Um, I'm trying to think. There, there might be one or two more that I'm missing. I apologize. Oh, uh, 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 Travis Mahoney getting a massage um, the day before his steeple race. So it just happened to work out. Like it was the first time I think that I had like really been fearless and trusted my gut. And I just like my the marketing brain inside me knew. I'm like nobody's going to be getting this. I know that. Like, I'm friends with all those other photographers that everyone follows on Instagram. Like, we're all friends. We all talk. And I just knew, like, what I was getting, none of them were going to get. And I'm like, this is going to be awesome. Like, I don't know who needs to see this, but if the right people see this, it's really going to kick off my career. And lo and behold, um, Zach Hetrick, he's like another 
huge, huge positive impact in my career. New York City based uh, photographer. Yep, yep. Um, he does a lot of work with Nike. Uh, super, super talented. He runs half marathons with a camera and takes pictures of uh, Kevin Hart during 5Ks. Um, I had dinner with him at what the Goose it's called, like the place everybody goes to out there. Yeah. Um, and he just, he's like, this is the guy you need to contact here. This is the guy you need to contact here. Like here are their emails. And like, honestly, I don't think the project would have generated the work it did if it wasn't for Zach. So I'm like forever, forever, eternally grateful for that guy. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Whoop. I'm super excited about what this company is doing for athletes. Whoop is a fitness wearable. It's just a band that you wear around your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Here's what's great about Whoop from my own experience. Every day when you get up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator on how to approach your day and your training. If you get a green recovery, that's a sign that you can have a more intensive workout, but if it's red, that's a signal you might want to take a rest day or have an active recovery day. The Whoop app even has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion levels based on the level of intensity your body is signaling that it can handle. If you're not sure what type of training your body is ready for, this is an awesome feature to keep you from overdoing it. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so that you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set for yourself. For everyone listening to this, Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario, that's my name, at checkout. Go to whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Mario, M-A-R-I-O, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. My thanks to Whoop for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Let's dig into the project itself a little bit more. You mentioned how you got your credentials by chance, there happened to be this white wall where no one else was. So you just kind of set up shop and tried to grab these athletes as they're coming through. I mean, you're getting people who just made the Olympic team, uh, others who just missed by a spot, some who had you know devastating performances. What was it like trying to wrangle them and asking them to stop even for a few seconds so you could take their photo when emotions are all over the place? It was one of those projects where like I've said yes to and I literally am so thankful that I had 10 days to photograph these people. Um, you know, it's one thing to photograph everyone after the tri- the trials or the semis because, you know, like 90% of the people make it. Like you run a race for two people to get, you know, or five people to not make it. So it was definitely challenging as the days went on now that people that I'm like, oh my gosh, it's this guy or that guy, you know, oh my gosh, like Rupp looks really pissed. Do I take a picture of Rupp? Is Rupp going to punch me in the face? Is is Rupp, is a Salazar going to, you know, come out of nowhere and slap me in the face? Like, do I get a picture of this person angry? Like, oh my gosh, like Alyssa Montano fell, like she's sobbing. Do I take a picture of her sobbing? Do I not? And it was definitely a huge growth for me in those 10 days in separating myself as a fan, as an athlete, as a coach, 
and like solely looking at, no pun intended, through the lens and being really uh, objective as to what the assignment was. And I find myself consistently drifting, you know, think I'm like, oh man, like, uh, 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 Morgan Husseini looks really sad. Like Chris Derricks looks really pissed. Like I couldn't not like, those were the tough ones to photograph. Cause I felt for them. It was, I felt like I was just capturing pain and like throwing salt in their wounds. But it wasn't until like later I started to like look through the images after each round and see like, oh, these are the strong ones. Like I'm the times where I'm like tiptoeing around the emotion and trying to be like overly polite, like I don't get it. And then when I'm like just blunt and like maybe I tell them to stop and turn, maybe I don't. Uh, maybe I get them to talk. And then once they start talking about the race, their sadness comes out and I could, you know, snap a picture. It was so, so difficult at the time, but like I, I was a different photographer 10 days later. Yeah, I mean, that's a very uncomfortable situation to be in when emotions are so high. People are dealing with either the highest state of elation they want to go celebrate or they just want to go dig a hole and bury themselves because they didn't make the Olympic team. And you've got to sum up the courage to, one, ask them to stop. And if they are willing to have their photo taken and like I'm like crunching up right now just just thinking about being in that situation and how uncomfortable and challenging it would be oh yeah it was uh luckily I had you know I just met Jason Suarez that's I never met him before and he I asked them for a ride on Instagram from the airport from Portland down to Eugene because I didn't even have a rental car um but like he was there with me, you know, he, we would like look at pictures together and, you know, he's be, he's a very honest guy. He'll tell you like, bro, that sucks. Like you need to man up and do this or bro, like that was money. Like that was real good. Uh, so he was there, uh, Greg Lariah, a good friend from college. Who's now, a uh, uh, athletic trainer or physical therapist at, uh, NY custom PT. He's like a coach of, uh, a run crew streets 101 he gave up his seats that he had bought in the stands to literally hold the light for 10 days <laughs> with me at the Olympic trial. He would just hold the light over my head because I had not gotten the stand and the stand was too slow and I couldn't swivel it in the right direction. And um, it was great being surrounded by those people to just give honest feedback. Um, some that I've never met and some that I've known for years to like, as the project was going on, like, okay, yeah, we're like, we're hitting it here. Oh, this isn't hitting it. So it was good. It was definitely a, a team effort. Did you get any resistance from either the athletes themselves or officials from USA Track and Field? I should say no comment, but uh, I'll tell you all the good stories. Um, um, no, the, the athletes, it was tough. Like, if you ask the athlete for a picture and they're sad, they're going to, when you say picture, I think just subconsciously, culturally, I'm going to, I'm going to crack a smile and a smile for you, but that's not the picture I wanted. So for example, uh, Kellen Taylor, um, she walked by, she had eyes watery and, um, she was fourth I, in the 10 K fourth in the 10 K. Correct. Sorry. Uh, she was fourth in the 10 K just missed the team like ran out of her mind. Like, lost to some really, really, really fast people. And 
tears in her eyes like cracked the smile. And I'm like, ah, that could be. Like if you zoom in, you can see the tears. So then I said, hey, uh, could you tell me, you know, what happened out there? And as soon as I asked that, she just got like down. You could see immediately like that, that freak smile she had put on because I said smile like disappeared and then I got the true emotion that I wanted. Real. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, oh, like her eyes start floating around. She's like, well, you know, she's grabbing the brim of her hat. She's putting her hand on her hip. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm just snapping as she's saying this. And she continues to tell the story. She's like, well, you know, two laps to go. You know, I, I really thought I was going to make the team. And like, I don't know, like everyone says it's like when it's happening, it's slow motion. You just see all your dreams disappearing in front of your face. So, um, like that, that's a very distinct memory. Uh, and then like the, you know, the USATF, Nike, uh, first placers, like, you know, they come corralled in. They don't have time for a picture. Don't bother him. He's on his way to the press conference. So, you know, I didn't get a lot of some of these like superstars that went right from their victory lap into the press conference. I understand they're running behind, you know, but the more sheltered athletes, I definitely didn't get a chance to, the more exclusive, I shouldn't say sheltered. I didn't get a chance to shoot, but um, everyone was like pretty open for the most part. Well, I love the images. It's one of my favorite collections. I've got the poster here in my office and it's crazy to think that that was four years ago. And part of the reason behind this conversation, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you or am excited to talk to you for this podcast is you are, I don't want to say re-releasing the photos, but you are taking the project to the next level. You just launched the four years ago project. It was going to launch back in late June, what would have been the Olympic trials that are now postponed a year. So you've decided to hold off and release this project in late July when the Olympics would have started. And you've gone and actually reconnected with some of the athletes that you shot right after their race and have gotten their perspective four years later. So I'd love for you to just give me the lowdown on all of it. When did the idea to do something else with these images four years later come to you? And especially as the Olympics got postponed a year, how did your vision for the project evolve? Originally, the idea I had in mind was to rent an art museum or some sort of like activation space, um, to use industry terms, to like an open space where I could print a very select group of these like large portraits and have like this audio visual experience that you could stand like on, you know, put vinyl on the floor, like stand here to hear this person's story. And then uh, like a, a speaker would autoplay that person's response and story. So I had like done all the research and I was desperately a couple months back trying to find a sponsor. I'm like, oh, maybe this, maybe this, you know, uh, GPS or this GP, you know, trying to find companies that might be interested in funding that because like you could leverage the pictures and then you could have like these athletes do like a live meet and greet. Like this would be awesome. Obviously, there's a lot of moving pieces to that. And once everything got canceled, like I knew that wasn't going to happen. Uh, 
And I thought, I'm like, why don't I just like put them online somehow? And I'm like, oh, I could still get like their audio. So the first couple athletes I asked, I was like, could you do something written or maybe audio? And then as soon as I got like an audio versus a written one, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to force everyone to just do audio because it sounds so much cooler. And that's where it snowballed. I was like, what can I call it? I'm like, I don't know, four years ago.com. Let me see if it's available. Oh, it's available. I'm buying it. <laughs> bought, I bought it, built up a site real quick um, and put the gallery. So right now everything's like hidden and locked, but we probably have like three dozen athletes so far on there and I'm hoping to get to 50. Well, as of this conversation, the website is live. Everything is unlocked. So where can people go to look at these images? How many of them are there? And what do you hope people take away from it? If you're interested in seeing the project, you can visit fouryearsago.com. That's the number four, not the word spelled out, fouryearsago.com. And there you will see a gallery, sort of a grid of all these athletes. You can hover over to see their name and event. Click on them. It'll take you to their page. And on their page, it'll give you their Instagram name, their performance from 2016, um, an audio transcript of the, the narrative they submitted. And then you can hit play and hear them in their own words, in their own voice, uh, respond to what their thoughts, memories, feelings were in 2016 and what's happened since then. Did any of the responses that were submitted surprise you? Yeah, it was amazing to hear everyone's response. Good and positive emotion, positive outcome, negative emotion, career changing. Uh, I don't want to give it away, but I am. But Shalaya Kip was like amazing, amazing. I, I honestly, I feel terrible. I hadn't followed her on Instagram. I ended up following her, sending her a message. Uh, seeing she's in Canada now, uh, I think pursuing her doctorate. And I sent her a message, you know, like most athletes, it, it took a while to get back. And once she did, she's like, yeah, I'll do it. Like send me the picture. So I sent her an email. And if you listen to hers, the first thing she says is when I saw what picture you had sent, I immediately shut down my laptop and like left the room. And I'm like, man, like these pictures contain so many powerful memories for these athletes trigger it's, emotions it's amazing because like just thinking back to our conver this conversation like part of the reason i got into this was like capturing these very very like emotional highlighted uh, memories for these people that i feel like i never got captured for myself in my career so oh man i just i I felt terrible that it was bringing up a negative thing, but I think that's where the most powerful stories are. Um, and she was very honest, very vulnerable. Uh, I think she gave about like a seven minute response, one of the longest. I can't wait to listen to that. I know there are some other interesting responses that you got from athletes who partook in the project. I'd love for you to share one or two more with us. Yeah. Um, Maggie Malone. I think she won the javelin. Um, she had beat out Kara Winger, the American record holder. And it was awesome to hear hers too. She talked about, like she starts off by saying, um, man, if I could go back in time, I would tell myself, girl, like you have no idea how this moment's going to change your life. 
And it's crazy. She starts to talk about like how she was new and learning everything and contracts and didn't have a clue and has been injured and now is training again. And, you know, the pressure of making the Olympics once, now it's expected you make it again. So that's another one that really stood out. Um, another one that really stood out was Johnny Dutch. I think he had run the world's fastest or broken the American record in the 400 hurdles like earlier that season, like super favorite to win. And he, he got like fourth or fifth. And I remember him just marching by super pissed, super upset afterwards, like marching right through the media zone. And I finally got a hold of him online. Um, funny story. He didn't have a rain jacket and I let him borrow a rain jacket the day before his final and then he didn't make the team and I'm like, damn it, maybe my like rain jacket was bad luck. But that was how runners think anyway. But uh, he tells a story of how he originally saw the 1996 Olympics and that's where his Olympic dream was born and how he felt like such a loser and how it was such a nightmare to fail to make the team that he, he thought it was a dream that he was going to wake up the next day and get another chance. But it wasn't. And he remembers reading a headline the next day, reading Olympic trials, biggest loser, Johnny Dutch. And he sank into a depression. Oh, that's brutal. And I know. And it's, it's intense. You know, uh, the media could be very honest. Uh, like I consider that we're part of the media, you and I and other, and, um, it's very interesting, like the the ethics and the moral ground you go into, um, you know, and how you report some of these things that are very, very sensitive times of people's lives. I and I'm not gonna. I, I'd be surprised if his ends up being the only response that mentions depression. I feel like there's already two or three other ones that have have mentioned they've sunk into a slight depression afterwards. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's, I mean, on some level, we talked about wrapping up your self-worth and identity in being a runner. I think a lot of people listening to this can resonate with that. But with these athletes, this is their job. And making the Olympic team can make or break their career, make and make or break their lives. They put so much into it in terms of time, in terms of effort, in terms of finances, in terms of emotion. And if they don't get it, this this one race that they have been building up to for the previous four years, if not longer than that, it doesn't go well. I mean, that can that can just really cut someone on a very deep level. Yeah. And honestly, that's that's where like the whole project stemmed from. Like I just realized and remembered how important some of those key races were in my very non-Olympic uh, short running career. And to, to see that at the highest level and have access to that and have these athletes like blessing and, and access was uh, like such a huge honor. I really felt I had to do the story justice and, you know, do right by them and doing my very best. So the third part of this four years ago project actually contains a print component. So you've partnered with Like the Wind magazine, which if you haven't checked it out, definitely look into it. I believe it's likethewind.com. I did an interview very early on in this podcast. I think it was episode 13 with Simon Freeman, who is the co-founder along with his wife, Julie, and the editor of Like the Wind magazine 
but their next issue is going to have a selection of your photos and a little bit of commentary from the athletes. Can you tell me a little bit more about that side of it? Yeah, Simon and Julie are, if you've ever met them, an amazing couple. Uh, I've had the pleasure of hanging out with them in Boston when they came over for the marathon and spending a few days with Simon um, at the New Balance Outdoor Nationals and, and finding stories and creating them just walking around and bumping into these uh, phenomenal athletes. But Simon, uh, I don't know if it's his amazing British accent or just how he articulates and describes things, but he has such a knack for the soul of running and what it means to be a runner uh, across so many different levels. And I'm really excited to have partnered with him and yourself uh, for a special you know, section in their upcoming issue that's going to dig a little deeper into some of these athlete profiles. Is there something different about the experience, I mean, obviously there's something different about the experience of listening to these athletes talk about this moment in their lives in the online component, but seeing a full page high res photo with words next to it that you can spend some time with, it's a little bit more tactile. Like, How do you think about those two different mediums and the way that they're consumed by readers and listeners? I think if you're a fan of the sport, you're going to appreciate both of them. And I don't think, you could argue they overlap a little, but honestly, it feels like two new experiences, each of them separate. Um, the audio is great. You can consume it you know, on your laptop, on your computer, at home. But uh, if you've ever held an issue of Like the Wind, you'll be like, oh yeah, I get it. It's amazing paper, amazing cardstock. And I once heard an image is never finished until it's printed. So seeing them on the screen is one thing. Uh, holding it in your hand, having it almost like an art piece, especially if you're like really into this, into the culture of running, into the, the landscape um, that is like the Olympic dream. Um, you'll want to have one at home just because of how beautiful it is. Yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on the print version of it. For anyone else who's interested, I will have links in the show notes to this episode for where you can subscribe to Like the Wind magazine if you'd like to get the print version of this. Also, the website, as David said, is fouryearsago.com. That's the number fouryearsago.com. That's where all the photos will be along with audio snippets from the athletes themselves. It's super cool. If you don't remember the original iteration of this project four years ago, it's worth checking this one out and then revisiting that and seeing how it's evolved over that period in time. A few more things I want to get to before we wrap up this conversation. A year after the 2016 trials, you produced a video for Brooks called Gabe. And it was about Gabe Grunewald, who sadly passed away a little over a year ago now from cancer. Can you tell me about the origins of that project? Uh... As you started to say what you just said, I definitely started to tear up. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, she uh, was very, is very, very, very special. Um, I would say that project is probably the most important 
uh, project I've ever done in terms of personal meaning and um, in the scope of us doing things that really matter and not just things that people do for clicks. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the backstory. Uh, uh, enter Hustler David. Uh, Stephen Finley was friends with Robbie Andrews at UVA. Steve, can you introduce me to Robbie? He lives an hour from me and I want to do something with him. Great. Introduce me to Robbie. Robbie emails me back. I go do photo with Robbie. Send it to Adidas. No dice. Uh, fly to Colorado. Do something on Neely Spence because I know she's going to be the only American or the top American at Boston that year. Adidas listens. Adidas buys a boatload of pictures. Great. Rinse and repeat. Okay, Robbie, let's do a video this time. I do a video. It was the first time Robbie had talked about his DQ after Rio. It was probably in the winter we shot it. He said it was therapeutic. I hope it was, Robbie. I love you. Um, I drove two or three times to Jersey where he was, filmed, used all my equipment, bought new equipment um, with the hopes that if Adidas sees this, maybe I can land something. Um, crickets. I had met Leah O'Connor, uh, angel on earth, amazing person, um, at the Olympic trials. She was, I remember her telling me her foot was torn. Her planner was torn before she had even told anyone in the media. And I have pictures of her icing it after her run in her hotel sink. So I'm forever grateful for you, Leah. Um, and she, Leah, oh my gosh, she's going to kill me. Anyway, <laughs> I think it's Leah. Um, she had tra knew the story, right? The new story. She was uh, with one group and she, she went to NorCal distance team. Kate Grace is there, the 800 meter champ. And uh, there's a few other girls that are there. Um, I think Lauren Wallace was there. And I'm like, hey, Leah, how about I like come out to you? And like we do the story of like, I kept seeing this theme of like all these people that had a little bit of a sour taste from the Olympic trials. And I thought Adidas at that point should have told more of those stories leading up into the next year world championships and leverage them as content. Adidas didn't do it. And I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to go do it myself. So I flew out to Colorado or to uh, Sacramento, bought all this gear, Airbnb, shot like 14 hours a day. She was amazing. Her uh, Kate Grace's boyfriend pedaled me in a bike that I sat in the front while they were running their 10-mile run. It was awesome. Uh, I love you, Kate Grace's boyfriend, Patrick. Um, luckily, Paul Doyle, agent, super agent Paul Doyle, saw Leah's video. Sorry, Ashton Eaton saw Leah's video. Ashton Eaton forwarded it to Paul Doyle, super agent. Everyone pretty much that got a medal at Rio was like, is Paul Doyle's athlete um, for the most part. Paul Doyle sent it to Adidas. Adidas shows it at their boardroom meeting and Adidas ends up bringing me in for some work. He's like, I have these two ideas. One is Asafa Pal. Two is Gabe Grunewald. And I'm like, great. He goes to Puma. He gets Puma to fund this project with Asafa Pal and Three days later, I'm like in Jamaica at a South Powell's mansion creating this project out of thin air, how he's only three 100-meter dashes away from 
breaking 10 100 times let me interrupt uh, right here so hi. you're at asafa powell's mansion in yeah. jamaica did you ever have a moment while you were there where you asked yourself how the hell did i land here uh you know something i am really working hard on is appreciating my wins uh i have a very very bad history of not celebrating long enough. I remember like, I'm like, yo, this is going to be dope. This is Asafa Pal, man, let's go. Um, but I remember getting there and I'm like, this is normal. This is normal. Like you're watching Judge Judy with Asafa Pal. This is totally normal. <laughs> I'm like, he has like 14 cars downstairs. Like this is normal. Uh, I just landed in Jamaica and this is totally normal. And um, he was awesome. He was great. He has a... Uh, I don't want to call her his publicist, but his right-hand woman was extremely professional and essentially produced the entire damn project from like a during a Judge Judy episode. She made all the calls, got all the permission, gave us all the access. Um, funny story, I end up getting heat exhaustion and lying on the floor under his air conditioner and I couldn't go out to dinner with him because they went to go eat jerk chicken. And I'm like, Asafa, I might die if I leave, so I'm going to have to skip out on jerk chicken with a former world record holder but uh i'm happy I, I didn't end up in the hospital but anyways uh long story short that's a project a whole other episode there's a really cool project there that's still in the works um i get off the plane three days later paul's like hey guess what uh brooks is interested in doing something gabe um here's the budget uh and she's gonna start racing and here's all her upcoming races and I had not produced anything before that other than the Safa project, which I had friends in LA who are producers. So they like held my hand for that. Um, and that was a hard, hard question. I almost said no. And I, I remember telling Justin this a couple weeks ago that Paul asked, because I had just got off the plane. I think my third kid was like just born or like a year old or something. And I was gone and I told my wife, I'm like, I might have to be gone for like 10 more days now. It's like, sorry. Um, and she very, very supportive and encouraged. She told me to take it. And I felt that I may not have been the one to do her project justice. And I remember Paul Doyle like calling me out. He's like, you're just scared. Like, you're going to be awesome. This is going to be amazing. Like, go do it. Like, I want you to do it. And I don't want anyone else to do it. And I'm like, this is cool. I'm going to do it. So like, me and my buddy DP and uh, uh, steeplechase and Nicole Bush, who I'd met at the Olympic trials, uh, flew out to Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, sorry. And we uh, we followed her for, geez, seven different cities over the course of three weeks. We followed her from meet to meet to cancer meeting to doctor's meeting to meet to her home and uh holy moly it was like the toughest hardest thing you know capturing things trying to be objective and not get emotional trying to be respectful trying to ask the right questions to bring the right results and it was awesome and hard and i don't regret a single day of the shoot how challenging was it for you to keep the emotion out of it and focus on the story when 
she's got a long scar on her torso. She's going to chemo treatments. She's trying to race. I mean, and you're in it, um, trying to document it and also trying to think about how all of these pieces are going to come together to form a film. Keeping the emotion out was incredibly difficult. Uh, like I said before, like as a coach, as an athlete, as someone whose family has been directly affected from cancer, like I was been volunteering on that bike ride for, you know, 10 years. Uh, my wife biked on that ride. My wife's father, my wife's brother passed away from cancer. Um, so it was, it, honestly, like once you got on set, and my uh, DP, Blair Madigan, he works on all those Discovery Channel shows like Ice Road Truckers and Swamp Men or Gator. I, I'm butchering up these titles. But he shoots like all those reality TV shows that you probably watch on like National Geographic or something. Uh, he was extremely professional and he was very much so able. And he, him too, he's been affected by uh, cancer uh, personally, uh, you know, someone in his family. And... um yeah, we were able to honestly just have like really objective series discussions at the end of every day of, you know, what did we get that was good? What did we kind of miss the mark on? What are we tiptoeing around and being like overly polite on? What are we scared to go? Like, and we just had these conversations, you know, we'd wrap at like 10 at night, eat dinner at 11. We're offloading footage at midnight and at one o'clock, we're like figuring out, all right, tomorrow she's going to the hospital. What are the 10 scenarios she comes out of the hospital and she's crying. Do we take time to put the microphone on her? But we're getting this crying and she's holding back tears. What if she gets out and she's smiling? Like what if, so I remember like just working through all these scenarios. Okay, do we have to get permission to shoot on the grounds? Can we shoot outside? Can we shoot across? Is the name of the hospital going to be there? Like what did the producer get? I'm the producer. Oh crap, did I get that email that I needed? So it was just so uh, overwhelming and everything was happening so fast that I think there was almost no room left to to be uh, sidetracked by the emotional component. I recently saw a documentary called Cheer on Netflix and I Google all these directors when I see them. And a, a line in there said, uh, I always try to tell the story with a cold eye, but a warm heart. And I, I think back to that project yeah. and I think that's sort of, encapsulates it that we had to be very objective and sometimes cold on set uh, but th you know that didn't negate from the fact that like we loved her you just described how challenging it was just to shoot all of that i mean you're literally all over the country over the course of a short period in time always have the camera going have to have some hard conversations at the end of the day what was it like putting that together afterward to my uh, not-so-pleasant surprise, we kind of wrapped shooting. And I remember Paul and classic Paul Doyle, I love you, Paul Doyle, uh, fashion. Paul was like, hey, great news. Brooks wants to show the documentary at USA Championships uh, during their media day. Uh, can you edit it in that time? It was like four days ahead. I'm like, uh, uh, I mean, holy moly, talk about like, it was education. It was film school that I never got to go to. It was, 
I literally just went into the basement and 36 hours later, no sleep. It was done. I literally remember like looking outside at four in the morning and like getting into a groove on this one section. How am I going to tell this? And, you know, Brooks is the client. So do they want more motion? Do they want to track it race to race? Um, did this footage clear? Uh, are we going to get this footage like cleared or what's going on? Like I was told this was cleared. I'm not sure if it's cleared. Do we put it in? Who's, who's, and you know, at four in the morning, you can't pick up the phone and call Brooks and say, Hey, did you get the clearance for this one footage that you said you were going to get, but I don't want to put it in and look like a jerk. And then it was wild. Um, I remember getting off the plane, getting to the hotel, maybe two hours before it was supposed to be shown. To my utter surprise, the Brooks guys were like, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. I'm like, bro, like it's, <laughs> you you have not seen everything I've put in there. They saw like the first 10 minutes and they're and like, I'm heavy sure. stuff. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm sure it's great. And I'm like, she's going to see it. Nobody told me that she was going to be in here. So I remember like exporting the file like 30 minutes before it had to be shown. It was insane. And I don't know. I think I was just like so exhausted the rest of the USA's. Um, I ended up like just sleeping a lot. I remember, um, but I, I'm happy I did it in my mind. There's a whole separate story that wasn't told in the one that everyone saw. Um, I have so much more footage that a lot of people don't know and haven't seen. Um, and I, I think one day I'll eventually like do a, a director's cut, but just the thought of digging back into that emotional roller coaster uh i think you have to be like in the right state of mind to to tackle that well to the degree that you're comfortable talking about it what is the story that wasn't told oh man um if you can give us the cliff notes version yeah um in every single interview and instance no matter what brick was thrown into gabe's face that girl woman, angel, never cracked. She never had a tear, never a watery eye, never, maybe if she had like Justin picking a piece of grass out of her eye or something, like she didn't crack. Justin, rightfully so, bawled his eyes out. We That didn't make it into the cut. Um, the day I went to Nashville, I wasn't going to go to Nashville. The budget had already run out. I paid for the camera. I paid for the plane ticket or maybe Paul covered the ticket or something, but we were out of budget like for weeks. So like the whole edit happened with no budget. Um, I wasn't going to go and I'm like, you know what? Like we went to every other race. I'm going to go to Nashville. I have an athlete I could stay with that I used to coach. It'll be good. It was the only time she ever bawled her eyes out and it, everything she had been holding back like poured out of her after that race, it was the, she had chemo on Tuesday and raced Friday. And I, she ended up walking off the track, like Sarah Vaughn and another Brooks athlete, like, you know, arms around their Porter, you know, like, Hey, you know, great job. Like, you know, her, her Gabe self. And then she just starts to walk away. And like, this is the difficult, like Dave, you got to go after her. Wait, is she going to the bathroom? What's she going to do? Like, should I follow her? Should I give her her space? And the microphone was still running and she turns the corner and you just heart, see her start sobbing. And it was like my one regret for the whole project that I didn't... She went to a very dark 
like shady, like not a dark place emotionally, which she did, but it was very dark. Like even if think if I got the camera out there, you wouldn't have been able to see her. It was like under some trees in Nashville or something. And everything came out. She has this really uh, intimate, uh, really uh, apologetic conversation with Justin. She starts telling him her feelings. She just becomes unraveled. And Justin, just being an amazing husband, consoles her. You know, he's like, you don't need to apologize. Like, stop saying that. Like, we did this together, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then, lo and behold, like, her Minnesota coach comes out of left field I finally get the courage to like get out there and start taping once I hear like him come into the scene and he just like kind of changes her attitude 180 and lifts her up and her spirits and we capture that. But that's a huge thing that didn't make the, um, the documentary. And if I were to re-edit it, I think I would start the documentary with that race and then rewind two weeks or three weeks and then show the rest of it. That's an incredible story. I appreciate you sharing it. And to anyone who who knew her or followed her career, Justin's a very good friend of mine. That's Gabe. Um, she would, as you said, like just take the bricks to the face and not even flinch while Justin, you know, would be off to the side showing that emotion. And what was interesting, I was at her funeral last year and Justin who had just lost his wife and just lost his best friend. And this is a big deal in Minneapolis throughout the entire service and everything around it. He channeled his wife and he had that, I wouldn't, not lack of emotion. That's not the, that's not the right word, but he wouldn't, let people show how rattled he was because he wanted to be brave like Gabe and wanted to just like, you know, have that rub off on, on, on everyone else. So, I mean, for, for me knowing them and the, the story and and having been there, it like gave me goosebumps to hear you describe that story. And I mean, I, you know, I hope you do, come up with a director's cut someday or, or put that out somehow because I, I think, you know, people have read all of these stories about Gabe and you can encapsulate that, you know, and, and actually like show it, um, which is, I don't know, that's just like, oh, it's amazing. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, glad that you were able to spend that time with them and, and document um, that time in her life. And I mean, at the services themselves in the funeral home your documentary was playing like looping um on on the screen in the back room anyone who went back there to just sit down for a bit and there's photos all around the room but on a projector screen was your documentary playing the entire time that's powerful all right, a couple more things before we wrap up this conversation. I've kept you for a while at this point, but I'm interested in the biggest ways that you've evolved as a photographer and as a creative since you got started in this whole racket. Oh, man. I would say my relationships, finding the right people, um, I think is so key to surround yourself with um, 
mentors or just colleagues really get into whatever it is you're trying to uh, excel in, I think you really have to get into that community. I think you have to be good. I think you have to like pay your dues, whether you come out of college extremely talented or you're talented from the get-go. Um, I feel I had to do a lot of self-funded projects that in the grand scheme of things were just another stone, you know, stepping stone. But, you know, maybe I did stuff. I've done stuff with Robbie that I thought was amazing work, especially the video we created together. Um, but, you know, to pour your heart and soul into project after project after project and then not know if you're closer to your goal was very, very hard. And it's something I still do to this day. And it's it's very, very emotionally draining, especially if you're not patting your back self on the back on the way. So I would say like you can't be afraid to continue to pour money, effort, energy, time, time away from family, time away from kids to do some of these projects in hopes that they lead to the next thing. But uh, I will say like the one, two punch for me is been trying to tell these stories in whatever medium, uh, photo, film, sound, but also having the right people to share them with people that are the decision makers that can get you hired for the next thing. People that appreciate it and see, all right, this can be valuable for our company and our brand in this way. I'd like to talk to you. Last thing I'd love to talk to you about and circle back to the beginning of this conversation. What's your relationship, your own personal relationship like with running right now? You mentioned how at the end of your collegiate career, you're like, yep, ran my 159, dealt with all these injuries, like I'm done with it. And obviously you are a documentarian of the sport. You're at a lot of events, but what role does it play in your life at this point? That's a deep question. Um, I, after school, was just always injured. Uh, I, uh, I recently made the decision to give it one more chance to try to see if I can, you know, just get consistent training in and not get injured and be happy with running and find joy. And uh, I met a physical therapist in New York and I traveled, uh, you know, two hours or an hour and a half to New York City to visit her a couple times. Um, holy moly, I don't know her last name, Kathleen. She's a doctor. I probably shouldn't call her by just Kathleen. Um, but she's at NY Custom PT. And in two strides, she knew exactly what was up with me after years of seeing doctors and PTs locally and et cetera, et cetera. She saw me run on a treadmill for 10 seconds. She's like, you're, these three things are wrong. Like we're going to fix them. And I've run pain-free ever since that visit. It's been life-changing. And it was, uh, it's something that I'm experiencing new for the first time. Every single time I'd run, it was very much so numbers, very much so speed, very much so associating a pace with a self-worth. Whereas I realized for the first time this year, uh, before all the pandemic and stuff, I went for a run. I probably ran like 10 minute pace. And whereas in the past, I would have been like, disgusting, like horrific. Like, you know, I was like, that was fun. Like, 
it was the first time I didn't really think about the watch. And I got to look at the trees and the colors of the trees. I felt like a 70-year-old man. I was like, <laughs> oh, the wind's nice today. The tri-. And I think it was sort of like this crossroads of where I am as a creative and a, an artist now. Um, and I'm getting older, I think realizing that for me, yes, the money helps put pizza as you heard in my kid's mouth. Uh, but it's so much more than that for me. Now I remember executing before running or, you know, coaching, we got to run fast. We got to win. We got all American. We got to get this money. We got to get a big check. And although I, I do need money to survive running and both storytelling for me has taken on a much more artistic point of view in my life. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. I'm a big fan of your work. I hope everyone listening to this checks it out if they haven't done so already. But David Bersetti, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. My pleasure. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to Whoop for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Whoop is a fitness wearable you wear on your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. It has built-in features like a strain coach and a sleep coach that help you target optimal exertion levels and tell you how much sleep you should be getting based on the intensity of your training and the signals your body is giving you. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario. That's my name. When you check out, go to whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Mario, M-A-R-I-O, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at the Morning Shakeout. John Summerford, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance. And Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.